everyone, welcome to JTV. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by JTV regular Rabbi Daniel Rowe. Um, I don't, for the new subscribers to this channel, I don't know if you've already seen Rabbi Daniel Rowe's debate with A.C. Grayling, a famed atheist. Uh, it's one of the first piece of content that we ever put out, actually. Um, I basically bullied Rabbi Rowe into doing the, <laughs> doing the debate. Um, and it was absolutely phenomenal. And I highly, highly recommend um, that you uh, take the opportunity to watch it. We'll put a link uh, to the video in the description. Um, but Rabbi Rowe joins us again, this time via Zoom rather than in person. But Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us here again. Pleasure. So nice to be back. So obviously, you know, just a few weeks ago, the Jewish community were deeply pained to lose former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And he just had such a uh, outstanding contribution to uh, Jewish thought and the Jewish community and beyond the Jewish community. And we put out a tribute to Rabbi Sachs um, just after he, after he passed, which we'll also put a link to in the video. But I really feel that so much more needs to be said, discussed um, and thought about with regard to the, the content that, 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 he, uh, that he put out and the ideas that he put out. And, uh, you know, you and I were just talking and you were saying that you've kind of been going through a lot of his uh, literature in the last few weeks. And so I thought we could have a discussion about some of the key ideas that Rabbi Sachs gave to the world. Um, so do you have any uh, memories that stand out for you uh, from personal one-to-one -one inter interaction with Rabbi Sachs? I actually have a lot of personal memories of interaction. Um, when I was a kid, uh, just before, ju just before, yeah, just after he became chief, he came to speak in Manchester just before he became chief rabbi, but I think it was just, just before, just after, he stayed in our house um, over the weekend, over Shabbos, and uh, so I, <laughs> I was a teenager at the time, but, but I was quite gripped by a lot of the conversation. I try and ask a lot of questions, uh, sometimes a little bit, uh, ask too many questions. My parents had to tell me, you know, uh, but to, to quieten down and, and let others speak. But, um, but I did develop, thank God, I had that relationship. And, and whether it was when I was in yeshiva, when I was in university, at various points in life, um, when I had big questions, uh, sometimes in age when we had communal questions, and sometimes personal, I'd, uh, I had a list of people I'd speak to, but he was definitely one of them. And, and in terms of, oh, there's so many uh, profound uh, moments. That, you know, I, was, I remember when I was, I was thinking, well, I was, should I come up uh, and um, work for Aish? And he quoted an, a book he'd written, Tradition in Untraditional Age, and now Aish is advocating for tradition in an untraditional age. And, and uh, just like, uh, he had always, always had great lines. And they, apart from the, 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 you know, obviously the, the oratorical and literary skill of it, and he worked hard at the literature he wrote, but he also just had a natural way of, of coming with a few short sentences that reframed an issue. Um, that I had many, many times. Um, and uh, you, very rarely would, would I leave a meeting with him. I, I don't think I felt, in the meeting, there wasn't like his personality was to be a very extroverted arm around the shoulder, you know, that kind of thing. But it was very much about transferring ideas I did care very deeply. I would say two, I would say three things. It transferred ideas where where he, I think to really get the most out of the meeting, I felt I had to go back and reflect very, very deeply on what he'd said, what his insight was, the angles he'd taken. I, I have a few memories coming to my head right now as, as we're going through. Um, number two was he really cared. He really, really did care. Uh, and number three is that he really believed in the greatness within each of us. I mean, I, I think I felt that when I was in the room with him, but I believe that's what most people felt when they were in a room with him, that he looked at you and said, I believe you can do great things. Uh, 
Definitely. He told me, when I had a conversation with him once, he, before I was, a year before I set up JTV, I was telling him about my ideas and he was saying, you must do this basically. <laughs> um, and he, he uh, you know, said that technology is basically, he believed was God's gift to us in order to spread information and ideas at an infinitely faster pace. Absolutely, definitely believed in that, yeah. Before he got the, the team together that was putting out a lot of stuff online, he was already saying for a few years, you know, we gotta harness this, we gotta use this. I think there were aspects people didn't really realize about him. He felt very strongly that it's not just the head, for example, much as he was one of the best uh, presenters of, of cerebral um, presentation of Judaism, he very much felt it's the heart that we have to reach to, you know, that he's into music, into investing so much in the prayer books, in, in, in trans retranslating the Siddur and the Mahzorim because of that. Absolutely, yeah. And he certainly saw technology as a big medium for that. So what are some of the things you've been reading recently that have really stuck out in your mind? <laughs> well, I should say I've, I've read him, uh, you know, I've read a fair amount of his uh, literature over the years. So um, we had a fair collection uh, even before I left home. Although his earlier works are much more difficult, I think, either because I, I maybe I wasn't as intellectually developed, but I think also his writing style, he worked very hard on making it easier, more accessible. Um, as his career moved on. So I, th I think there's a few things that stand out. I mean, I think there's several themes in his writings, but there's actually many, many, many sub-themes. Um, one thing he was very, very, um, I wouldn't say obsessed with, but was really, really at the core of his thinking, goes all the way back to one of his earlier works, Will We Have Jewish Grandchildren? Um, and this notion that that which helped drive Jewish continuity um, in generations prior to his Right. He particularly singled out the uh, Holocaust and the state of Israel and its vulnerability um, will no longer be drive, as he was already saying, coming into the generation ahead. And we're going to have to take ownership of our identity. And I think identity was a big issue that he, he spoke with. A, you know, where do we come from? Why are we here? What should we do? Those three big questions, which he in different ways phrased many times, uh, were questions he felt the Jewish community had to grapple with. And then Later on, um, before he became chief rabbi, I used to sometimes do thought for the day and write in the times, but he returned to that in a very significant way. Um, somewhere, I think around, around about, um, I think probably the late 90s. Um, and over a decade of writing focused very much on, on asking the same questions of society. And, and so the questions he felt were the identity questions that the Jewish community is gonna have to grapple with and answer, were questions he then felt it wasn't just as a Jewish community, we had lost or we struggled with our identity because of secularism, but actually the entire world was struggling with a similar issue. And he felt in both cases, the language of faith provided the answer. And I think, interestingly enough, Robert Sachs would often talk about um, being a blessing and being a blessing for others. You know, like uh, God tells Abraham, tells Abraham, that um, you should be blessed, all the nations of the world. I think Rabbi Sachs felt that two points. Number one is that issues the Jewish community grapples with will also help the world. And more than that, the Jewish community is meant to have a voice in the dialogue of the world. We're meant to actively try to be a blessing uh, for the world. Well, I, I, I think there's a third point. Sorry, yeah, go on. No, if, go, tell your third point, then I'd like to pick up on what you is, said. Is it wasn't just that we have to grapple with ourselves and then our answers may help. I think he felt that in activating that voice, we give ourselves a deeper identity and purpose too. So it was kind of a closing of the circle there. Um, I think he always felt he, everything he was doing was building a Jewish answer to the Jewish community, a Jewish answer to society, and a Jewish answer to society was also helping build the Jewish community. I think from that perspective, there was some kind of um, 
circle in the sense that each was reinforcing each other. Absolutely. And, and I actually remember one of the, the pamphlets that he put out just after he ceased being chief rabbi. I think it was maybe in 2013. And it was called A Judaism Engaged with the World. And he said there are some Jewish people who are engaging with their Judaism but rejecting the world and others who are engaging with the world but rejecting their Judaism. And he said we should have practice of Judaism engaged with the world. Now, this is the question of to what extent do we as a Jewish community, you know, focus inwards and put up barriers, to what extent do we look outwards, um, is a big discussion. And probably there are, for certainly, there's a, a huge variety of opinions on the matter. Um, from, you know, from the right to the left, and even within the religious camp itself, from the you know, more modern Orthodox to the more, uh, let's say, Haredi or Hasidic. Or, and I, I want to ask two questions. The first one is, what do you think, in your view, is a good barometer or litmus test for knowing to what extent in any any sort of question or any situation to what extent should i be more open to this and open to the world or to what extent should i put up a, a fence in terms of protecting my jewish identity and the second question is do you think that the extent to which we have fences and uh, aren't or aren't, are or are not engaged with the world the the answer to that changes now in the 21st century for the Jewish people where we are more free and more able to express our identity and our ideas and values among humanity as a whole in, com in comparison to previous centuries. I think, I mean, so actually there's an essay, I've forgotten its title, it'll come back to earlier, relatively early on in his uh, chief rabbinate career, um, where he wrote about halachic change. And he, he more or less said that, um, I mean, he did say that uh, halacha changes as much as it needs to, to keep things the same. I uh, compared it, I think, to a plane traveling, uh, you know, fly-by-wire plane, which will stay on course, but the minute the wind pushes against it, it will push back. Um, and so there is a, always a strategic question as to what is the best mechanism to preserve Judaism. And in fact, his early writings, again, early, most of his early writings were just after he became chief rabbi. I don't think he wrote much before then. Um, and he had books like Tradition and Untraditional Age, Orthodoxy Confronts Modernity, where he was exploring a lot of these themes, um, always looking at the Haredi world as one answer, and then picking usually three different modern Orthodox strands: the Torah in Derech the view, the, the approach of of pre-war German Jewry or German Orthodoxy or neo-Orthodoxy, Rav Cook's vision of uh, of a religious Zionist in the state of Israel as the embrace of modernity in in, in a different type of of sense, and Rav Soloveitchik in in America, and and he would often talk about these. I, I think he would have added another element to this as well, which is, it's not just a question of which is strategically the best at preserving Jewish practice. I think Rabbi Sachs very much believed that Jewish practice is deficient, or the Jewish community is missing something if we're unable to contribute to the wider conversation of the world. Um, I think in some sense, or the, one of his paradigms would have been an era, perhaps going back to you know pre-12th century Andalusia, uh, you know, where the Jewish community was heavily engaged in a dialogues, uh, in, a di in the great dialogue of civilization, very much um, engaged in the high levels of society and contributing to and, and engaging from and to, to and from the, uh, the big works that were going on in the intellectual world at the time. That probably for him would have been a model um, because I think he, would have, he, he felt very much that this was a calling point is that part of what it means to be a Jew is if we can, can we give to the world? I remember him, um, he once stayed at my parents and he was wrestling with some very big social issues, talking to, you know, 
And he was saying, I'm convinced the Torah has what to say on this. Torah is God's word to us. It's covenant to us, but it has a universal message. We must go back into the Torah to find the answer, an answer, a Jewish answer. And if he said the answer or an answer, I don't remember, um, to, to these great problems facing society. It's not that Torah tells us how to do rituals and be close to Hashem in our own private space and the world then wrestles with big issues that we have nothing to say. That would be very much his approach. Not everyone would have agreed with him, but that certainly would have been uh, his approach. So in answer to your question, I, I think one answer is when, whether we build fences or, or tear them down is a strategic question of how best do we continue the Jewish people. But at the same time, he would have felt that anytime we do need to build fences, and, and there may be times we do, there's something we lose and the world loses. Absolutely. And, and but did, did he provide any guidance in terms of when we should or shouldn't do, do either action? And the other question I'd ask is, did Rabbi Sachs articulate how, what is the Jewish people's modus operandi in terms of influencing world opinion and, and world values? Because, you know, sometimes we're being persecuted and, or, you know, we're just, we don't have that kind of uh, influence or we're in the land of Israel if you go back thousands of years. And other times we now have the ability to, as I say, engage more publicly and openly in, in the human conversation outside of our community. And did, what did he believe was the way in which the Jewish people influence the human conversation? And did he believe that that sort of evolves and changes through each generation? Well, I think he would have thought that where we can <clears throat> have a voice, let's talk, but talk not as trying to impress people out there, but as trying to, to give an authentic voice of our own into the conversation, understanding the language in which the conversation takes place. Um, you know, he, his language and his training and his intellectual training had very much been secular, at worst should say not Jewish. Um, secular in, in one sense, but also richly, a rich understanding of, of the intellectual history of the Western world, which includes religious and non-religious, but not Jewish usually. Um, but I think he felt that's the language in which we must speak and engage in the world and be sensitive to the problems and challenges and, and, and areas facing 21st century mankind. But that the, what actually makes us special is not when we just sit there in big conversation with a kippah on our head and can talk secular talk um, and join the conversation on everybody else's terms. It's when we actually bring something that is because of the kippah on the head um, to that conversation, a voice they would not necessarily otherwise hear. That was, I think, very interesting, that he really was looking back into the Jewish sources and asking, is there a voice here that the world doesn't have and a means of translating that in a language they can grasp and understand? That was, I think, very central. Yes, he would, of course, have argued that in previous generations, and, and he did, that the conversation, the impact of the Jewish world was largely through people seeing value in Jewish texts and occasionally observing Jewish societies. But when we were locked in ghettos, in his view, uh, there was something missing not necessarily through anybody's fault, or certainly not through Jewish people's fault, but uh, that there was some sense in which we were handicapped from our national mission in his understanding of the national mission, yeah. And what would you think were some of the key takeaways from his book, Not In God's Name, which spoke about countering religious extremism? And are you aware of any of the, the kind of impact that they, that may have had in terms of the whole question about dealing with religious extremism? Yeah, so I, I think, look, it certainly had an impact of catching the world's attention. Of all the books he wrote, that was the one that I think was by far the best selling, by far the one that gave him platforms from TED to the Templeton Prize and so on. 
uh, gave him a voice even larger than one he already had. He did have a considerable voice, especially in America, but that really, in many ways, put him heavily on the map um, of the Great Conversation. And I think its full impact we'll have to see. We'll have to see if it becomes just a footnote in, in history or if it starts stimulates type of conversation. But then that would be quite typical of something Rabbi Sachs would have, I think, have thought was a very uniquely Jewish angle. Um, partly starting from the fact that, that, that Judaism as a whole is a non-proselytizing religion. And there are some historians who debate whether it ever was, you know, but certainly nobody would doubt that for thousands of years it hasn't been. Immediately creates a, a different type of religious thinking where we can talk about ourselves as, as having truth and being chosen without talking about others as having been rejected. The fact that in, in, in Jewish theology, it's possible for a non-Jew to have a portion of the world to come without converting to Judaism is quite unique. And, and that starts a viewpoint that he, he's going to then sit and think and say, or did sit and think and say, okay, how now this is something the world, imagine the world could do that. Imagine people did not feel they had to choose between creating tolerance and diminishing their religious zeal and passion. Imagine you could be zealously, relig passionately, religiously tolerant. <laughs> so as Jews, we can. Um, so where can we bring that voice to the world? Now, he could have just stopped there and said, uh, you know, and kind of flown a nice flag, but it, that wouldn't be a language that the rest of the world could necessarily accommodate. So he went back into the biblical text, um, which shared, especially book of Genesis, where narratives are shared with Christian, with the Christian world, um, and to a different degree, some of the narratives appear in Islamic thinking. I wanted to talk about this, this the fact that the tensions and the stresses are, are fatricide, they're within the family. But what does it tell you when you're starting to have battles within a family? Well, family is quite a unifying way of thinking. So what happens if we can relate to one another as family who are feuding and struggling? And are there points where there's models of reconciliation? Is there an ideal of a family to, to find a way to, to live with difference? Because that's what families often do. And so this, this was where his, his rich intellectual re-studying um, of the text was, was meant to serve not only to provide a manifesto, but to actually give others a model that they could try out in their own thinking, in their own religious thinking to explore if parallel ideas might be plausible for them to allow, a, Rabbi Sachs very much believed the world had to return to a much more staunch and um, real religion, right? That he felt that Western world, Western civilization had suffered tremendously through, through a secularization of, not necessarily secularization of, of the political institutions, but of its fundamental value system. That had gone too far and caused a lot of damage um, and, and from individuals to the wreckage of family life, to the directionlessness of society, and, to, and to, to the radicalization, not just in religious, but in secular terms too. And I think he thought that religion could be really, really binding, but, as he would, but there's, there's a type of religion, a type of religious interpretation that can be highly divisive and dangerous if we could uh, help encourage not the kind of secular religious, those who are kind of heirs to tradition, but have really adopted the secular soul with a religious trapping, but those who maintain and search for the religious soul, how that could be voiced and manifest without any, um, without any loss of religiosity, without any lack of integrity about the tradition, but actually discovering resources within the tradition. That's, I think, what he was trying to do. And it's remarkable, I mean, in this book, but also in other books, he managed to speak about key political and cultural issues of the day without ever really being accused of political partisanship or sort of being, you know, too sort of yeah, polarizing. H how do you think he was able to do that? 
Well, first of all, there was a certain level of abstraction to his work. Uh, a lot of the ideas were up there, you know, bringing them down to earth could be quite difficult. Um, I know that was something some people grappled with after a, a number of his political books. In, in a, you know, in some sense, many of his books were about society at large. Um, but for example, The Home We Build Together, which was a masterpiece, very, very daring, because it was really at a point where, where um, most of society held, we've got to pursue multiculturalism, and the voices pushing against it were typically associated with racism. Yeah. Or, or the, the far right. And he basically came out with a counter voice saying, look, let's admit it's not working. I've got a, a biblical insight into how we can make a society work, achieving what multiculturalism once hoped it would achieve in a very different way. Um, and that I thought was a brilliant-, brilliant And can you, can you summarize the premise of the, of the book, The Home We Build Together? Essentially what he was saying is, look, the Jews were always a squabbling group of tribes. And even when they came out of Egypt, they didn't cohere into a single nation united under God, willing to obey God's word, even after revelation. What really did that was that, was that they took on a project together and that project was building a home for God. And that national project that it galvanized each tribe and each family and each individual to contribute something unique was repeated later on when, when King David united the people. And there, there wasn't even a biblical injunction to build a permanent house of God, but King Solomon said, you know what? Now we've got to bring the tribes really together as a political unit. Let's do it again. So this idea that he was saying is, is look, we've now got this multicultural Britain where people are increasingly viewing themselves as being in a hotel with one another. Or, you know, rather than the old model of being in kind of the guest in the house. So we equal, but we don't feel invested in it. Let's build the national home together where everyone can bring their, the majority can bring its dominant history and narrative, but minorities can contribute too. And together we can build something that unifies. That was kind of the theory. Uh, of course, the, the, the question is, how do you practically do that? That would, he would have said, is not his role. And so it doesn't particularly fall into a political camp. Some may have criticized it therefore as being very abstract, but you know, I think it almost should have been given as a paper to think tanks to, to analyze is their way to bring this to the fore. And you could feel the majority civilization turning around and saying, well, no, you know, we've already built the home. So that there would have been a lot to figure out if it were to become a political project or a social project. But I think that was a big point. And he pointed not just to the biblical model, but to points in history, specifically America, which was never built upon a shared ethnic group who's, who had a shared heritage it was built upon the power of ideas and the notion that we have to build this thing together based on a covenant so that i think he he very much saw as uh as kind of a, yeah so that's the premise of that particular work rabbi isn't it interesting though that in this book the home we build together where he is basically saying that having disparate cultures and communities within a nation or a society is not a good idea and communities need to work together in a sense it's, it's somewhat of an assimilationist message saying that, you know, let's say in the case of Britain, he's saying communities need to work together, need to become you know, more united as one. And uh, isn't, isn't that quite paradoxical that as someone who's railing against assimilation when it comes to Jewish people, he's also saying that communities around the, the UK and in, throughout the world should need to come together in some capacity. How do, how do you balance the two? Some thought it contradicted an earlier work of his, which was The Dignity of Difference where the premise is in the title. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. Dignity is not about conformity, but about, about respecting difference. Um, but first of all, his thought did develop. You know, he was looking at problems that were moving uh, um, all the time. But second of all, uh, I think, I think, um, 
I think he would have answered, no, it's not a zero sum. It's not, it's not even an either or, because the biblical tribes were not asked to become one. They were asked to become one at one level, but they were asked specific, you contribute best to the whole when you, the Zavulan tribe, are best at being Zavulan, at doing something the other tribes can't do. You train yourself to build what's unique about you, but you do it for the sake of the vision of how you then can then contribute con contribute to the whole. That kind of, I think, was his vision of how we can then preserve um, subcultures. On the contrary, assimilating them in would be something we would then lose. Imagine you've got people who are expert embroiders, uh, embroiders or expert architects, or expert, and then you just make everybody the same. Then you lose the home you can build together. It's when you bring all those different expertise, the carpet layers and the painters and the people who really specialize in different things, and you know, like the biblical model of, of the of the temple construction had lots of different skill sets and lots of different groups of people who could do them. And then the model of different tribes who just didn't just get different areas of the land, but actually brought different skills and talents to those areas to then give back to the whole. That I think is how he would reconcile it and say that in a sense, we to build the whole, we need difference. But the meaning of difference is what it brings back to the whole. That I think is how as how he viewed it. And you mentioned his book, The Dignity of Difference. And I, you know, I remember I've got it in my room and it's got on the, the, the front uh, cover, the picture of the Tower of Babel, where you had basically all people uniting under one common cause and purpose uh, to the extent where they were basically trying to fizzle out in individuality and God had to disperse everyone and separate them out into different languages. And he spoke about how, you know, dignity comes through difference comes through everyone having you know coming from different backgrounds different cultures different this that because if and once everyone's different then everyone has something unique to contribute and that can give us a self a sense of self-worth and dignity and my question is if he's basically saying that do you think that it becomes clear that in the sort of the the very dominant conversation at the moment between the globalists and people who are more on the side of the nation state, he would, is, is that implying that he's more on the side of saying, no, we, it's important that we maintain national differences, religious differences, cultural, all that kind of stuff? Well, it's interesting. I, I think it was his speech to the Templeton Foundation where he pointed out that we talk about globalism, but actually we've had globalism for a very long time. He gave the example of Jewish communities historically traded and wrote to and, and one another all over the known world. Um, he, you know, Maimonides, just look at his volume of letters, where, where they went to, where they came from. Law was decided collectively as, you know, across as, as transnational communities. Trade was often done that way. And, and, and it wasn't just true in the Jewish world. So, but then he said, what's unique is the loss of the local. You know, today we trade internationally, but to a large degree we've lost the local. Um, and that's what creates alienation on the one hand. He also then argued that we do sometimes face global problems and don't have global institutions to solve them. So on the one hand, I think he would have, he would have said that humanity perhaps does need to create some kind of global institutions that are actually genuinely effective. Uh, how we do that might be very difficult, but that's something that would be an ideal if it could be done. At the same time, we need to boost localization. So I think he would have said we need to move in both directions. But I think he thought very strongly that without faith, these things are very hard to do. That faith creates the uniting narratives and, and um, it creates senses of mission and purpose. It creates sense of unity beyond, um, beyond what we share and how we differ from one another. Sometimes it can add to what we share and how we differ from one another, but in particular, it can create a sense of narrative. We're all children of one God. 
yeah, that type of thinking that could really help us trust one another. Uh, you know, it's easy as a Jew, let's say in, um, I don't know, in the 16th, 17th centuries across the Ottoman Empire and European Empire to trade with one another because we trust one another because we're all serving the same God. What happens if we could try and elevate that to humanity? And you might think secular world provides that answer, but history shows it doesn't. That uh, all it does is in trying to, uh, you know, throw a divinity out the window, we don't create greater unity. In trying to throw one aspect of what divides us out the window, we don't create greater unity because the way religion divides us is by uniting groups. Um, and by uniting some groups as insider outsider, we need to somehow take that unification of insider and finding a way that it doesn't reject outsider. And then we'll have the glue that binds us. And to be clear, he wasn't advocating religious governments per se. You know, he was arguing that, uh, very much in favor of the separation of religion and power. He's talking about yeah, religious society. The early political model of the, so the 17th century of the secular institution of the state and freedom was actually a really good idea. In fact, he pointed out that many of the 17th century thinkers who first came up with the idea did it in dialogue with biblical texts. Later, the French Revolution may have, uh, you know, deleted that little part of the conversation. So, but I think he thought that part was actually a positive part of the, of the development of modernity. But then it had overreached and tried to secularize the, the space of identity and morality. And that, I think he felt, is where faith done correctly, religion done correctly, is the best thing that we and, and is critically missing and what did he think was some of the biggest dangers or risks of a secularist culture and society well i think inevitably he felt that if you pull meaning objective meaning you know sometimes people who have dropped uh, adopt more of an atheistic stance might talk about um i can create i could feel meaningful but feeling meaningful is just a way of serving and it's generating nice feelings in my head if you pull over higher purpose away from people then the highest purpose a person ultimately has is making themselves feel good. Now, sometimes giving to others makes you feel good, but ultimately it becomes completely about serving oneself. And serving oneself is the beginning of the breakdown of the collective. And the breakdown of the collective is disintegration, right? It's a disaster for families, and he felt we're seeing that. Disaster for communal cohesion, right? And I think he felt that too. And disaster for national cohesion, disaster for international cohesion. In the end, when it's about how do I best make myself feel good, and that is the highest value, then uh, we're in trouble. And um, the only way to break out of that ultimately is either to create fictitious senses, but the only motivation to do that is it makes me feel better, or that we really believe there is something greater than all of us. There really are purposes to which our lives ought to be attached. Um, and it's that that really he, he felt is true and denying it is denying a truth, but it's also denying a deep part of our, who we are. And on the matter of um, theodicy, the question of how can an all-powerful, all-good uh, and all-knowing God allow for suffering in the world, he was very much focused on talking about faith as protest. Uh, against the world that is and, and, and wanting to, the role that human beings have to play in making the world better and also, um, you know, challenging God and crying out to, to Hashem. And often, he, you know, he cited some of our greatest, the greatest leaders in the Torah, Avraham, Abraham, Moshe, Moses, who would challenge God when God um, said he was about to do something, about to wipe out Sodom or wipe out uh, the Jewish people. Um, did he also, you know, I, I think there's a lot of beauty in that position. Did he also, though, make space for um, and, and talk about the importance of also sometimes surrendering to God as well, as opposed to protesting against 
the way the world currently is. Because that also, I feel, is an important part of uh, the Jewish uh, viewpoint and Jewish message. So truth is that there means a book he wrote much earlier in his in his career on theodicy, which I haven't actually read, um, but particularly post-Holocaust. But but um, I think this, the place you'll find that in his writing is primarily in, in the Siddur, in the prayer book. Uh, he actually writes, um, I think, on his commentary to Adon Alam, right, and Yigdal, it, that Jews, you know, a lot of theology, a lot of philosophy, people look for it in, in biblical texts and can't find it, but they really are looking in the wrong place. It's in the prayer book. We don't just think and pontificate our philosophy. We live it, breathe it, pray it. You know, it becomes so. I, and I think there you'll see aspects of this. There you will see that. But you will see the prayer serves two functions. It builds trust in God, but it also is where we cry out in protest at the way the world is. And it's that that duality of, on the one hand, accepting that God's got this greater plan, but on the other hand, we're feeling, in other words, it may be that on a certain level, things aren't as bad as they look because of some big master plan, but on the other level, they hurt. And that hurt is intentional. That hurt is where we, the hurt is the task of the human. The task of the human is to take this painful world and transform it and play our role in building the pieces um, to transform it into a world where hurt doesn't exist, where all that hurts us um, will be gone. And he used to say, and that, that's been, if you think about things like uh, the medical profession is where we fight against uh, illness and suffering with, you know, he always, you see uh, the economist is fighting against poverty and the, uh, and so on, the lawyer fighting injustice, that ultimately there are purposes to these professions that serve the world. Their purpose is to, to do all, all of this. Ultimately, each business is, is trying to get goods and services to alleviate some degree of pain or suffering. And he therefore felt there was a lot that we do that's more noble than we realize it is, uh, if we could tap into its, uh, its deeper underlying purpose. But yes, the, the biblical prophets and, and the, the rabbis of the Talmud are always talking about a world as it will be. The fact that when we talk about a world to come, according to the majority of Jewish uh, philosophers and commentators, not all, we're referring to the end of history not where you go when you die, right? Afterlife is something else, but the, the concept of resurrection of the dead, of bringing everything back into this world is that history itself must head somewhere different to the place that the, the world as it is now. And we have to do our piece. In fact, I think his motto when he was chief rabbi, his chief rabbi gets a motto. His was the mission in Prakeva in the, in the ethics of the fathers. It is not for you to finish the work. But you have no, you're not free to, to, absolve yourself from the responsibility. That I think was a very good motto for how he looked at life, looked at history, looked at the world. The world is a place that is far from perfection and we should be outraged by that. But our response to outrage is to do our bit to move history closer to perfection. And there's two final topics I want to talk about with regard to Rabbi Sachs. The first one is about Israel and Zionism. I actually remember in 2009, one of the first uh, political rallies I ever went to and when I went to hear Rabbi Sachs speak uh, was Ollie, you went to political rallies? <laughs> <laughs> it was the first one when it was... Uh, I, you. I was, I was maybe 14, I guess. <laughs> Start them early. I don't think um, you started earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> probably. And um, at the rally, Rabbi Sachs spoke, and it was basically in defense of supporting Israel's right to defend themselves against these barrage of rocket attacks uh, that were being, you know, um, uh, initiated by uh, Hamas in Gaza. And I was extremely moved by his words and by him, him emphasizing that the Jewish people throughout 
our entire time in exile and, 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 and just as much now crave nothing more than peace. And I was so moved by it. Um, what, what do you think were some of the key uh, sort of beliefs that Rabbi Sachs had about Zionism, its importance? And I know he produced um, some really important content uh, on, on, on the matter of Zionism and defending Israel. And where, where did he want Israel to develop socially, culturally, politically? These are all really good questions. Um, and you'll find different snippets of thought in different works of his, right? You have earlier on, uh, he has a book called One People, where he, amongst the questions he asks there, although it's primarily about what orthodoxy's responses are to these things, he does ask about Israel and the diaspora. He has an article, I think probably about midway through his chief rabbinate, um, where he also challenged the state of Israel to think, you know, think in terms of even if there's justification for the, how it's ended up being in a situation of occupation, you know, that, that uh, at the end of the occupation corrupts, he did feel that. And that the, uh, there was an unfortunate title that that line was taken in, in an otherwise strong defense of Israel, um, where, where somebody had asked that question, um, you know, doesn't occupation, isn't it bad? And he sort of put the line, all occupation corrupt, but, and that became the headline, which for a lot of the community at the time uh, was quite uncomfortable with. And I think he, he regretted having been drawn into an interview that could have made so, But I do think he certainly would have felt in an ideal world, he wanted to support Israel finding a way to extricate itself from a scenario of occupation. But broadly speaking, he saw Israel as the great miracle. And more than that, I think he saw it as the reversal of the greatest injustice in human history, that an entire people had been exiled and persecuted for centuries and had nowhere to call home. That he saw the, the, the state of Israel, aside from our own experience as Jews, um, that was just on a moral human level, that that was one big part of the state of Israel. Um, I think another thing he felt was that anti-Semitism is a very, just like the Jew has a really important voice in Jewish history, so there's an anti-Jewish voice that's always there in Jewish history and will, and will manifest in its mutation of the demonization of Israel. That I think he really, really, really felt. Um, in terms of, of where, and I think that's separate from the Jewish story that this feels, you know, this is, uh, he wouldn't, I, I never saw him articulate his own particular position per se on, on how we relate to the miracle of the state of Israel, but I think he certainly felt it was miraculous. It was an incredible moment in history. It was the first time we could now feel as a nation, this is part of what gives us the ability to talk in the world because we're not just a bunch of, of refugees everywhere, but we're a people who have a certain dignity and a certain platform uh, and therefore even the diaspora have a certain respect. I think he, he certainly believed that it, it was a massive turning point in Jewish history, um, massive uh, sense of miracle in having the state. Uh, now, in terms of where it's going, so yes, I, I think he, he, he certainly um, would have hoped they could find a way out of the long-term conflict with, 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 uh, with the neighbors of the state of Israel, find a way that they can accept Israel, and then find a way to be able to, to not be in a scenario of occupation. That's certainly there. I think he felt that the big crisis of Israel was long-term, um, certainly later on in life, I think he felt this was internal, as many others feel. You know, the strife, the tension, particularly between religion and secularism there. Um, I think he felt pained by the attitudes on both sides to varying degrees, um, by the integration of religion into politics, but also anti-religiousness into politics. I think he felt both those are unfortunate. Um, 
But at the same time, I think he, he might have felt to some degree that it's part of the natural, you know, bringing back a people who have been argumentative throughout our history, but have not functioned the, under one political system to function as one is going to produce... It's in, never going to be easy. <laughs> so um, I think he was probably optimistic that in the long term, it will work itself out. But as he often spoke of, there was an optimism and hope is optimism is kind of being passive and just believing it's going to work out. And hope is is the driving force that, that tells you you should be a part of doing that. But I'm not sure, at least I don't know of any articulated uh, philosophical model that he was producing specifically around solving those problems. I think at a certain point in his career, he stopped trying to directly model out how Jewish communal problems should be solved and instead focused on trying to, rather than get stuck in the quagmire of the current debates, model things forward. Let's learn from our Torah and translate its teachings into language that every Jew can connect to, and let's create the sense of what the Jewish people can contribute to the world. And those two alone will start to reshape how Jews think about themselves and their brotherhood with one, with one another, and so on. That, I think, was where he felt his contribution um, lay in all this. But the real, I have to say, I never had a personal conversation with him about this yeah so, i know i did see a video where, i saw a video where he spoke about he wants to you know zionism uh initially was about creating a jewish state and he said now we need to have zionism 2.0 which is having uh, a more jewish society um and it's talking about the the internal matter of uh you know what's going on in israel internally uh, among the, the civilian population of israel um, I'm not aware of any specific sort of uh, suggestions or ideas he had, um, but I don't know whether you were. That, I, think, I think at a certain point in his thinking, his view was that he can't solve all these problems and any attempt to will often just, uh, you know, at best uh, just end up with a lot of grenades lobbed at him. And rather than that, let's start to forge a vision forward you know let's hear another voice let's hear more new voices as the jew always does in every crisis goes back into the torah hears new voices and those voices then carry themselves on a trajectory i think that's where he felt that he can contribute by teasing out some of those voices listening again to the text of the torah and the text of chazal the rabbis and, and hearing what they say to us when we ask the questions from our generation and then hearing what they say to the world. And I think he felt the more that we can generate that, the, that will help. It won't be the only thing, but that will help uh, allowing the Jewish world to sort of put its head above the parapet of the little battles in the trench and say, oh, how about we all get out of the trench and march forward? Uh, you know, talk about what, what, listen to what, what, how we can build this thing together and uh, listen to how um, we can help collectively have a voice in the wider conversation. I believe that he, he felt that. But, you know, the truth be told, I think there's other people who would be able to answer the question on Israel better, specifically people who have those conversations with him. Absolutely. Well, Rabbi Ray, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us some of your uh, thoughts on Rabbi Sachs. And there's a lot of content out there. We've produced other content with him in the past uh, on JTV, um, but there's tons of content out there on YouTube. Obviously, you can get his books on Amazon um, and, you know, just on, on so many of the the key topics uh, that society today is grappling with, he had something to say on the matter. So um, in that respect, I think we should all try our best to, you know, in the world of Jewish education, to emulate that, 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 that message and that, that approach, um, to always find the wisdom uh, that exists within uh, Judaism for whatever is going on in the world. Um, Rabbi Rowe, thank you so much for sharing with us your thoughts, uh, ideas and reflections about Rabbi Sachs. And thank you as always for making the time to appear on JTV. Pleasure.
Thanks, Ollie. To stay up to date with JTV content, click subscribe here if you're on YouTube and hit the alarm bell. And if you're on Facebook, hit the like button and under following, click see first. If you enjoy watching JTV content and want to help us continue to grow, please consider making a donation to us by clicking here.